0: Take your Bibles and make your way to the very first chapter of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1. And I suppose I should do that with you, shouldn't I? Let me turn there. I've titled this sermon um, a sermon. Well, yeah, this sermon to kick off our summer in the Psalm series. And no, Jay, I am not preaching through all hundred and fifty Psalms. For me, as you all know, that would be about five lifetimes. True. True story. Is that right, Sam? About five lifetimes to get through that. No, we're going to be doing selected psalms, and, uh, but we are going to start with Psalm 1 this morning. And I'm entitled this particular sermon, Happiness 101. In other words, here's how to be happy. Um, everybody wants to be happy. It's so good to have Miss Memory back with us. Uh, I can't tell you how that... I was so disappointed, in Memory, that your first Sunday back, I was preaching at Redeemer. I was, we had a great time with the saints over there, but I wish I could have been here. But I'm glad to be here for your second Sunday back. And it's good to have Arlene back with us uh, to, today as well. Uh, but if you, ever, if you ever ask Memory, how you doing? You know, that's just a thing that we say. It's just a colloquialism. Um, what does memory always say? Bless. See that? I'm blessed. That's right. I'm blessed. Um, I remember Miss Leontine. Some of you old timers will remember Miss Leontine. I say, "Hey, Miss Leontine, how you doing?" And what she would say is, "Do you really want to know?" In other words, is that, are you just being polite, or you want to know the truth? I always love. I love those two women for their answers. I'm blessed. We all want to be blessed. And this psalm is going to give us the key. It's going to give us the markers, if you will, of how to be happy. And blessed literally does mean happy. It it does. It means to be full of joy. We're going to look at that in its entirety today. But this psalm here introduces the whole five books. And the conclusion of it is like the rest of this ancient prayer book is a study in contrasts. Really, I want to to explain it this way. Psalm 1 is a microcosm of the entire Psalms. Because they're talking about this blessed man, and then there's always the contrast with the cursed man. All throughout the Psalms, there is the righteous and the wicked. And it is no different here in this introductory book. Matter of fact, when you hear the righteous and the wicked, you probably think more of Proverbs, don't you? Uh, There's a reason for that, because Solomon was David's son. Where do you think he got it from? Um, I know, as was our habit, especially when the older four children were growing up, we would read a proverb together as a family every morning. And Ellie was just a little tyke. And uh, they, Elizabeth and Ellie were in the Lake Wildwood pool one day. And she, and she said, Mama, let's play Proverbs. I'll be the righteous and you be the wicked. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's pretty much the contrast, isn't it? And in this psalm that we're going to look at this morning, it's a massive contrast. It's a contrast between two different people on two different paths living two different lives, headed to two different permanent places and destinations. One is blessed, the other is cursed. One is like a tree, the other is like chaff, blows away. One is fruitful, the other is barren. One is planted by the watering streams of irrigation. The other merely exists in a dry and a barren desert. But before I get too much further in this introduction to Psalm 1, I would like to introduce you to the entire prayer book. Many have mistakenly called, myself included, the Psalms a hymn book. It's more of a prayer book than a hymn book. And uh, hopefully you have it in your hand. kind of looks like a cartoon. And it says, uh, what does it say in the top? Does it say Psalms? It just says Psalms on the top. Um, Take a look. I'm going to invest the time in this video because it's so well done. I promise you, that's why I'm giving you the hand copy of this too. You'll never read the Psalms the same again when you understand its contextual history and how it's laid out. You know there's an order to it? You know there are five separate books in the book of Psalms? And and then you have this introduction in chapter 1 and 2. And then a conclusion of about five books. Um, all of that is in there. And if we don't have that context, I don't know that we'll appreciate it. And I will say one more thing, and then we're going we're to watch this incredible video done by the Bible Project. You can go online and watch this. Just look up Bible Project. And I'd encourage you to do it. Sir, they have an app? Good. An app Excellent. I did not know that. Yeah. There's an app for that, apparently. <laughs> um, and my goal, and it's only a goal, is to make sure that between now and and the end of September, as we're in this psalm series, that we get at least one uh, sermon in each of the five books. Um, And so with that in mind, uh, I want you to watch this, and I want to introduce you to the prayer book
1: of God's people. The book of Psalms... It's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word Hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, may the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of Book 1 because most of the poems in Book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching. And more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here actually the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from Second Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now, Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the Messianic King will be blessed precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the Book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people, as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah, as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example, Book 1 has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalms 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him and God elevates him as king. Now in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future who will also call out to God. He will be delivered and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book two opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the messianic kingdom. Then book two closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the messianic king over all of the nations. This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David. But now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result and destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of Poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called The Hollow and the other called The Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then... Right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in Book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song, 1 Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three, but pay attention because you'll see praise poems occasionally too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound. And it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. That's what the book of Psalms is all about.
0: Amen. Isn't that interesting, church? And we have that audio recording going, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Isn't that fascinating? How that's, and it's so important to understand that as we, as we work our way through um, this book and in the selected Psalms to see that there actually is a scope and a sequence. And I love that last line is that, A a true faith is forward-looking, amen? And that this this whole book is all to teach us how to pray. Now, they were praying for the kingdom that was coming, and it's important that we understand this. We pray for the expansion of the kingdom that has come. Uh, One guy in the corner over here, our security, got that. Y'all, we need to realize that we are living in the fulfillment of Psalms. What they prayed for, what David and the other psalmists prayed for, we now enjoy. Are you with me? And that's why you have to to read the Psalms in light of the... our kingdom reality. For example, maybe one example, David prays at one point in there, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. What do we learn in D groups this morning? God gives His Holy Spirit how? Irrevocably. Well, David lived in the Old Covenant. We now live in the kingdom, and in the kingdom, the Holy Spirit's never taken away. So you have to read the Psalms with grace glasses on, with kingdom glasses on. Super important, otherwise you can get all twisted up and go in directions that were never intended. So as we look at Psalm 1 today, and we're going to read it together, um, it'll come up here in the screen. I want you to join me as we read. I know we've already read it once. We cannot get it enough. Let's read it again together. Here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful next one just I will keep around. but his delight is in the law of the lord and in his law he meditates day and night he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither And whatever he does shall prosper. Did y'all hear that? The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. In this psalm, as it introduces all of the psalms, looking forward to the kingdom that we now inhabit, please keep that in mind, because what was true then is true now. There are only two categories of people on earth. How many categories, church? There's only two groups of people. There are the righteous, who are blessed, and there are the wicked who are cursed. cursed. Now, we have a lot more categories in our thinking, don't we? We have rich and poor, Republican and Democrat, Northerners and Southerners, Americans and Foreigners, Boys and Girls, Educated and Uneducated. But I'm here to tell you, God does not. He has only two categories in which He fits all of humankind the righteous. And the wicked, the blessed and the cursed. And here's the big question today, and it's intended as you read and study and meditate upon the first psalm. It is simply this Which one are you? According to God, not according to you. How many of you know you can fool yourself? Amen. We talked about that in our D group. If you're not in D groups, you're not growing. I'm sorry. Wow, we talked about some hard stuff, super uncomfortable. I want you to answer at the end of this today, and we may not even finish this today, and I'm not worried about it. We'll pick it up next Sunday and finish it because it deserves its justice. I hope to finish it, but we'll see. Which category has, does God say that you're in? Not you, God. Now, I want to give you a little bit of history here, too, about Psalm 1. Did you? We tend to think because it's the first psalm that it was written first, don't we? That's not true. Um, The Psalms were not written in the order in which they appear in the Psalter, which is the compilation of the Psalms. We call it a Psalter. Uh, The first Psalm was written, um, the first Psalm that was written is Psalm 90. Moses wrote that. And it was some 400 years. It was written 400 years before Psalm 1 was written. So think about that. The last Psalm to be written, Well, Psalm 126, and it was written, listen to this, almost a thousand years after Moses wrote Psalm 90. So what you have to understand is this compilation of of kingdom messianic prayers called the Psalms has a long history, almost a thousand years apart from first to last, So that's kind of fascinating. The compilers of the Psalter, the scribes who put it together, intentionally ordered how the, uh, the Psalms in a particular grouping, and here's why, don't miss the intent, in order to teach us how to pray through our lives in the good times and the bad, and how to function within the kingdom of God that for them was coming, for us is here. Are you with me this morning? It's to teach us how to pray. That's why one of the things we love to do around here is to pray the Psalms. That's why the Psalms are easy to pray, because it's a prayer book. And so Psalm 1 is strategically placed here so that every time you come to this master prayer book, you are confronted with these two categories of mankind. The blessed and the cursed, the righteous and the wicked. God's people and Satan's people. You are meant to be consistently confronted with these two categories so that you will ask yourselves the question, which category am I truly in? They knew that these scribes, as they put these prayer books and songs together, that not everyone who read this during the public gatherings of Israel was in right standing with Yahweh. Do y'all get that? It's the same today. Matter of fact, not everybody in this room today is in the category of the blessed. Some of you sit here today under the preaching of God's word and you are cursed. And the problem is, A, you don't care, or B, you don't know it. That's the truth. And then Psalm 2 was written along with Psalm 1. They're actually companion psalms. It's actually a literary device called inclusion. There are book, bookend statements. Psalm 1 opens with blessing. Uh, blessed is the man. Psalm 2 closes with blessing. When it says, um, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. So this whole thing is written together as one. And Psalm 1 and 2, they are the ushers as you come into the sanctuary of God. They are the two gatekeepers that testify to the two people, the two paths, and the two permanent places in which they will ultimately end up. So with that in mind today, uh, I want to remind you of these two categories. And one last interesting tidbit, and that's all this is, Psalm 1 at least is anonymous. They say Psalm 2 is, but Luke, the writer of Acts, attributes Psalm 2 to David. Um, So David might have written 2, but a lot of the ancient um, rabbis attribute Psalm 1 to Solomon. It was was common for uh, a son, specifically um, the eldest son, although Solomon was not, he was the heir. It was typical for a son to write the preface to his father's work. Um, and this sounds a lot like Proverbs, doesn't it? So it, it, it could be that Solomon actually, actually wrote this. So as we transition into the text this morning and into your outline, um, I want you to see that in verses 1 through 3, I want you to see the blessed person. And then in verses 4 through 6, I want you to see the cursed person. So we're going to look at the blessed person first. I want you to gaze deeply into these descriptions, their habits, their lifestyles. And I want you to ask God himself, in which category does he see you? This blessed man, as we come to him in verse 1, is satisfied in the Lord. Jesus takes this psalm, right, and he amplifies it in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? It's all about who is blessed. He takes this blessed man and he unpacks him more. So if you want to go into this deeper this week, go hang out in Matthew 5 and see what Jesus does with Psalm 1. And he begins, How blessed is this man? And that word blessed uh, means deep-seated joy, supernaturally happy, blissful, Genuinely satisfied. I'm going to tell you something that is true. A dour, grumpy, sour Christian is not accurately reflecting Christ. I'm telling you what, how many of you run into Christians that look like they were baptized in embalming fluid? Right? I mean, they, they are the most unfriendly, uncharitable grumpy people that you would not want to... That is not the picture of a blessed man. Matter of fact, this word blessed is in the plural. He uses it twice, and it's a, it's a, it's a Hebrew literary device. It, if, you, if you woodenly translated this, here's what it would say. Oh, the multiple blessednesses of this man. This man is overflowing With blessing. He has multiplied multiple (laughs) blessings in his life. This man cannot wipe the smile off of his face. And I want to just stop right there. Is that you? Now, there's some of you I can think of that constantly have that smile on your face, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. You're blessed. Right, and by the way, when you're blessed and you know you're blessed, you can't help but be happy. That's why I call this Happiness One Hundred and One. All the blessednesses of this man. What 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 was what, what was the psalmist say? The joy of the Lord is my strength. John Fifteen Eleven. Jesus, I I, I come that you might have life and have it to the full. Right, and we be full of joy. So the question. Today is not, can God bless me? Can God bless you? Yes. yes, He can. Here's the question. Am I blessable? So really that is: can God bless me? Am I the kind of person that God can bless and maintain His holiness? Can God, am I blessable? In my current state, in my lifestyle... Am I blessable? In the first three verses, we discover a tutorial, a 101, on being blessable. And I want to say this before we get into this outline point today, because I don't believe in discouragement. How many of you know there's enough discouragement outside these doors, you don't need it in here? The only discouragement you need in here is to be discouraged with your flesh but encourage in your spirit, Amen. As you re- you just got to be honest. As you re- read these three verses, do you know anybody who accurately hits all these marks of being blessable? Honestly, anybody come to mind? There's one, the blessed man of of Psalm one. You know who he is. He's Jesus Christ. Did y'all get that? I want to I I say this to you to encourage you, to f- infill and infuse you with the courage of the Holy Spirit today. Chapter 1, those first three verses are a description of our Lord and our Savior and our King, the Messiah. Remember, this is a Messianic book. Jesus Christ. This is Him. And I want you to keep Jesus in view as we walk through these verses, you say, but what's that got to do with me? Everything. I've said this before, and I'll say it till I'm, I'm, I preach my last sermon, I'm sure. And hopefully it'll be in there. There's only one person who ever lived the Christian life successfully, and he's the only one who can even today. If, if, if any victory, any success, any blessability in your life is attributed to one person and one person only, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If I tell my kids all the time, if anything good is coming out of me, you gotta know it's Jesus. And all the rest, I'll own that. Huh? So don't be discouraged, be encouraged. Because there is redemption, there is regeneration, there is blessing in the one who is the blessed one. The literal meaning of Messiah, the anointed, blessed one. This is the man that we preach. And the only way to be blessed is to be in him. So with that in mind, let me give you the marks of how to become blessable. Number one, the the people who are blessable, we must first of all be separated from the world. Verse number one, we must be separated from the world. This is what he doesn't do. Here's what the blessed man, to be blessable, here's what you don't do. And there's a YBH in there, yeah, but how? We must avoid the steps that lead to sin. I'm going to say it again. We have to to learn to avoid the steps that lead to sin. Notice what it says. Blessed is the man who walks. Now notice this, this negative. Not in the counsel of the ungodly. Here's another negative. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor, another negative, sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, we have a tendency, do we not, to want to turn that around and make it a positive. David could have, or Solomon possibly could have written this. Whoever wrote it could have written it as a positive. If if you are not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, then you are walking in the counsel of who? The godly. He could have said it that way, but he doesn't. Why? Because this blessed man understands that the world, the cosmos, is at war with the kingdom. There is a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light and they have nothing in common. And by saying he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, you know what he is saying? He never walks in the counsel of the ungodly because he could walk in the counsel of the ungodly sometimes and then sometimes he could walk in the counsel of the godly, which is what we do if we're going to be honest about it, right? But Jesus never did. Amen? We have a Redeemer who is righteous. So here's the first thing I want you to see here. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly. I call that considering sin. Walking. He's considering sin. Now here's a picture of a man who is just walking, minding his own business, going about life. And all of a sudden... Something catches his attention, and that something is sin. And all of a sudden, he's looking for some advice. And oh, I want to tell you, be careful where you get your advice from today. Advice is who or what you are looking to for answers or ideas. How many of you know there's only one place to go for advice that is proven and trusted. And brothers and sisters, if you go anywhere else than this, you are in for trouble. You are in for cursing. You are in for bitterness. Now, the Bible doesn't lie about sin. The Bible says sin's great for a while, sin pays off immediately. It's buy here, pay here. Right? But, oh, do you end up paying so much more? And do you end up hurting so much more deeply? That's why Solomon says in Proverbs, My son, give me your heart. Listen to me. Give me your ear. Give me your heart. Take on my advice. And he writes an entire book of advice. And you know what his son, to whom this book was written, did with it? He devalued it. He didn't listen to it. And instead, he went to his ignorant friends for advice. And his kingdom was ripped from his hands. And Israel was split. Never to be united again. He's considering sin as he's walking along. Brothers and sisters. When sin introduces itself, run away. Replace the lie with the truth. The next thing I see is that he's contemplating sin. All of a sudden he's walking along, minding his own business, and something catches his eye and he's considering that sin. And all of a sudden, now he stops. Now he's standing, he's walking, now he's standing, and he's contemplating this sin. I've learned this the hard way in my life. Listen to me. When you stop moving, you're in trouble. When you stop walking with the Lord, you're in trouble. Because when you're sitting still, Satan's going to surround you with temptation. And he's going to make sin look pretty good. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. Flee, what does he say to do with sin? The specifically sexual sin, physical sin? Flee, run away from sexual immorality. And here's why. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Next verse, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who, who is in you? We talked about that this morning in D Groups whom you have from God, and you are not your own. And then he concludes in verse 20 by saying this. Here's why you're not your own. You were bought with a price, a great price, amen? Therefore, because you are bought with a price and you're not your own, and the Holy Spirit is in you, glorify God in your body and your spirit. And notice, which are who? God's. Look here, look here. You don't belong to you. And he says, run away Don't contemplate sin, not for a moment. Run away from it. Get away from that sin. Have nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with it. Reminds me of a story I heard years ago about a young, very young Indian brave, and he was out hunting on a cool, crisp fall morning up in the mountains. And as he stepped over along, he noticed that there was a, just a tiny juvenile rattlesnake laying there. But the weather was so cold and snakes are, are cold-blooded, um, it, it, it could barely move. So he was in no danger. So he took out his war club and raised it up. And right before he sent that snake into the next world, the snake spoke and said please don't do that look how small I am look how immobile I am you got nothing to fear from me don't kill me matter of fact pick me up and and put me inside your shirt against your skin so that I can warm up and I promise you I won't hurt you Well, the brave being young and inexperienced, some would say foolish, picked up that half-frozen viper and tucked him inside his leather shirt and continued hunting. When he finished hunting, about an hour later, he was walking down the mountain trail and he felt a little prick, a little sting in his chest. And he looked down and that rattlesnake's vein, uh, fangs were as deep as they could go right over his heart. It didn't take long that the venom began to take its effect and the young brave sank to his knees, dying. And he looked at that snake and he said, but you promised you wouldn't hurt me. And as the snake unlatched himself, having done His deadly deed began to slither away. He turned around and said to the dying brave, you knew what I was when you picked me up. Oh, I want to tell you, sin will always end in death. You knew what it was when you embraced it. For the wages of sin is death. And here, This blessed man, he doesn't even contemplate sin. He doesn't take any advice from the wicked and the worldly. He's a kingdom man. And he doesn't have time to stop and hang around sin. He doesn't contemplate sin. But here's the next one. In order to be blessable, we can't be comfortable with sin. This blessed man is not comfortable with sin. First he's walking, then he's standing. Now he's sitting in the seat of the scornful. Do you see this negative progression here, church? D.L. Moody said this, Sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. How many of you know when you're on a good flesh trip, your nose is not in this book, nor is your heart? One of the discussions and questions I have for my children all the time is, Tell me what you're reading in the Bible. I already know the answer based on their behavior that week. Amen? John Owen, the Great Puritan, said this, Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Think of that rattlesnake. Here's another thought by John MacArthur. Listen to these words from this man of God. A person who is not concerned about having his present sins cleansed, has good reason to doubt that his past sins have been forgiven. A person who has no desire to come to the Lord for continued cleansing has reason to doubt that he ever came to the Lord to receive salvation. John Stott put it this way. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet but they cannot live together in harmony. And then Spurgeon said this, too many Christians think lightly of sin, and therefore they think lightly of the Savior. Hmm? Not the blessed man. Blessed man has no time for sin. What are you making time for in your life? If you're making more time and more plans for sinning than you are for sainting, then you're probably not a saint. Amen? What's the desire of your heart? So that's the first one. You've got to be separated from the world. Here's the next one. This blessed man, to become blessable, we must be saturated with the Word, verse number 2. So the first verse is what he doesn't do. Starts out here's the things to avoid. Be careful where you get your advice from. Be careful who you're hanging around with. And then be careful what your what 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 your life is marked by. Amen. Nice, that's what he do not do. He doesn't hang around with the sinful. He doesn't hang around with scorners and mockers. He's very careful. His advice only comes from God's word and God's people. But the second one is, here's what he does do. Here's the positive. He doesn't have time for the other because he is saturated with the word. Look at verse number two. But, that's a a contrast, right? Now we're going from negative to positive. But his delight, everybody say delight. delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates how often, church? Day and night. In his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. When, when Anna brought little Peter to me this morning, right before church started, and she turned him around and handed to me, and he, she said, he's ready to go golfing because he's got a golf um, collared shirt on and, and loud golf pants, uh, shorts on. I held that little baby up and you know what the you know what the only word for that is? Delight. Yeah. Oh my. My heart just, I could be frustrated about a thousand things. She hands me that baby and all of a sudden they all melt away. Why? Because I delight in that child. It's delight. We got to be saturated with the word. But instead of going to the world, He has gone to the wonderful Word of God. You can have the world, or you can have the Word, but you can't have them both. It's all right for the boat to be in the water, but as Ben and I learned the hard way, it's not so good when the water's in the boat. As Christians, we are to be in the world, but brothers and sisters, when the world gets in us, we got troubles, and we become unblessable. Jesus never had any water in His boat. Instead, He was saturated with the Word. Jeremiah 15.16 says this, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Do do, Do you devour this book? Or are you devoured by this world and its thinking? He delights in the law of the Lord. Loves it. Can't get enough of it. Psalm 37, verse 4. The psalmist says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Let me tell you what that does and doesn't mean. That doesn't mean, Ben, if you get up, and read your Bible every morning and even read it again before you go to bed at night for a week, that God's gonna give you a 10 pound bass. Now I know that's that's the desire of your heart. I get that. Here's what that means the more we get into God's word, and more importantly, saints, the more God's word gets into us, what happens is we change. The things we want. Our delights change. Are, are you with me? Our delights change. All of a sudden, we are loving the things that God loves. And once our delight lines up with what God God's will, His determined will, guess what? Then He gives it to us. What this means is not that God is going to give you the carnal, fleshly, wicked Desires of a fallen heart. Instead, he's going to give you new desires, and then he's going to fulfill those desires. Does that make sense to anybody this morning? Yeah. He will grant you. How many of you know? Some of you today, we need some new desires. I see too many people living for themselves, not understanding that there's a kingdom, much less an eternity to follow. Yeah. Psalm one, nineteen, ninety-two. I love this. Boy, have I I ever marked this one on my heart. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. How many of you know bad times are coming? Y'all ever been through bad times? I look at so many widows sitting out here. You ladies know bad times. And let me tell you something. I know you ladies. If God's word had not been your delight, you'd be in a bad place right now. I know you young people sit here and think that you're invincible and that you're bulletproof, but I'm telling you, nobody outruns the judgment of a holy God. You are not bulletproof. Bad times are coming and it is only our delight in the Word of God and the fact that we're hanging on to it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that is our salvation when the rug gets pulled out from underneath of us. Paul put it this way in Romans 7 and 22. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I like how it says it in the old King James. For I joyfully concur, I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner man. At the core of my being, my delight is in God's law, God's word. And then lastly today, and we will pick the rest of this up next week because I need to take the time to make this contrast full. Lastly, we must be situated by the water. Verse number three. This verse is explanatory. It's observatory. It says because of what this man doesn't do, and because of what this person does do, the result is what he's like. you all following that? He will be, notice that's future tense. He will be like a tree planted. Planted where? By the, river. By the rivers of water, the water streams, are literally the, agric- the uh, what's that word? It's by the aquifer. Yes. Water that is rerouted. And what, what happens when he's planted there? He's going to bring forth his fruit in a season when it's right. His leaf is not going to wither. And whatever he does shall what? Prosper. Prosper. That word planted there literally in the Hebrew is, is the word transplanted. Transplanted. In other words, this tree started off somewhere else. And if and, and and if and if that tree had been left out in the wilderness where it started, its life would be very different. But someone came along and found this tree, dug it up, and took it to the farm, to the orchard, and planted it right alongside of the irrigation ditches, where it would have plenty of what, church? Water. Now, you got to understand something. Where, where, where David lived, still same today, everyone thinks of Israel. You know, we see land flowing with milk and honey. We think, oh, it's such a green place. That place is a desert, man. You ever been there? You ever seen pictures of Israel? It's a desert. Very. The only place you see anything green is where there is what? Irrigation. So here's the picture. This person, this blessed man, is transplanted. He is taken out of where He is and placed of where He started and, and transplanted into a place of provision and blessing. And as a result of that, He's fruitful. That makes sense? That's not hard to understand, is it? No, not at all. So here's the point here. As we do the first two, as we're, as, as, as we're careful where we get our advice, who we hang out with, and the activities we're okay with. And as we fill ourselves with God, saturate ourselves with God's word, what happens? <laughs> it's like being transplanted from the world into Christ. Imagine that. Look at this verse with me. Just two more verses and a statement and we're done. Colossians 1.13. He, speaking of Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness. Look at this. And transplanted us. That's literally what that word in the Greek means, conveyed. And transplanted us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. What's he saying? We all started in the the kingdom of darkness, but through repentance and faith, we are transplanted into the kingdom of the Son of God. Are you with me? And unless and until you've been transplanted and taken out of Adam and placed into Christ, blessing is out of reach for you. I want to make that abundantly clear. But no, we are taken out of Adam and we are transplanted into Christ right into the rivers of living water. Amen? And then we're given the Holy Spirit as a gardener. Amen? We're given the Holy Spirit which God will never remove. And the Holy Spirit is our gardener. He prunes, He fertilizes, He digs around us, He surrounds us with exactly what we need so that we can bear fruit and don't miss this, not for you, but for the, for the one who owns the garden, and that's the Father Himself. Anybody here this morning? 2 yeah. Corinthians 5.17 Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, there's that transplanting. Whenever you see in Christ, think transplanted. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Look at this. Old things have passed away. Verse 1. All things have become new. Verse 2. You see it? You see this pattern reflected all throughout the Scriptures. We have been taken out of Adam and transplanted into Christ. What a beautiful truth that surely is today. And in fact, I'm going to take two minutes and give you these last three. We can do it. How about the unblessable? Verses 4 through 6. The unblessable. Number one, here's what they're like. They're unstable verse 4. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Chaff is like those dandelions. You know what I'm talking about? Not those yellow ones, the white ones. What do you do with them, Dale? You blow them. And what happens with just a little bit of breath? They're gone. They have nothing holding them down. If you go up to an oak tree planted by a river and blow on it, what's going to happen? Not a blessed thing. You see the difference? They're unstable. There's no substance, no endurance, no longevity. The Bible says the name of the wicked will rot. They have built their life on sinking sand. Number two, they are unprepared. Verse number five. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in a judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They are not prepared for judgment. Oh, they think they are. I've heard many stupid, foolish people say, well, I'm ready to face God on my own terms. You're an idiot. You obviously don't know you, and you don't know God. Because if you knew both of those people, you would sing a very different tune. These people are not going to stand in the judgment. And I know when I was these fellas' age, maybe younger, I thought that I could go sow my wild oats on Saturday and pray for a crop failure on Sunday. But I'm going to tell you what, it doesn't work like that. Old Lee Robertson used to preach a sermon called Payday Someday. Brothers and sisters, it's coming. It's coming. And some of us are sitting here rooting for the destruction of these people. But I'm here to tell you some of you are these people, and you're self-deceived to think that you are not. May God help us. You know who the best detective in the world is? Best detective in the world is sin. Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, be sure. It said, But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord you sinned against the Lord. So Moses is pointing his finger in the, peop- in the face of the peace of- people of God and said, you have sinned against God. And then he says this, oh, and by the way, be sure your sin will what? Find you out. Best detective in the world is your sin. Richard Baxter said this, sin dwells in hell and holiness in heaven. Remember that every temptation is from the devil to make you like himself. Remember that when you sin, that you are learning and imitating the devil and are so far like him. And the end of all is that you may feel his pains. If hellfire be not good, then sin is not good. Who are you imitating today? Who do you look more like today? in your everyday walk, in your thinking, in your desires, and what you're chasing after? Do you look more like Satan or do you look more like the Savior? And then the last one in verse 6, saddest truth of all, they are unknown. For the Lord knows the path of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. They're unknown. When it says the Lord knows, that word knows there isn't just is aware. It's not an awareness. Let me put it this way for the adults in the room. It's the same word in Genesis. When the Bible says Adam comforted his wife Eve and he knew her and she bore him a son. We're talking about that kind of know. Y'all with me? That intimate, marital covenant no. And along with that goes a lot of other knowing, doesn't it? I tell you what, I could fool a lot of people. I could fool a lot of you. I really can't fool her. (laughs) Because she knows me. She knows me inside and out. She, know, she knows all my tricks. They're not even tricks to her anymore. She got my number. And all the way of the righteous, God's got that number. God knows his people like husbands know wives and wives know husbands. But notice this. The way of the ungodly won't, It's going to perish. The sister to this is in Matthew 7, 22 to 23 Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We cast out demons in your name? And haven't we done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here's the conclusion of the matter today. And it's why Psalms opens up with this stark contrast. Because every time you read a psalm, you need to ask yourself, Am I blessed or cursed? Am I righteous or ungodly? Because the answer to that is going to determine how you read that psalm. So here's a conclusion. Which one are you? Which actually best describes your heart and your life? At the end of the day, I want to ask you to do something. We're going to do it right now in our closing prayer. I want you to ask God Almighty to reveal to you which category He sees you in. And if in his kindness, he shows you that you are in the unblessable category of humankind. then he's done that for a reason. So that he may transplant you out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the way that happens is through repentance and faith. You say, Lord, I am wicked. I am ungodly. And I'm a one sinner. But Jesus died even for me. I turn from, I reject that sin and I embrace Jesus as my King. And I will follow him the rest of my life. And you'll switch categories. Don't put that off and don't play with that. It's not a joke. Let's pray. Father, right now in Jesus' name. I pray that you would give boldness and clarity to every person who is hearing this sermon, whether it's over the Internet or whether in person. And I pray that you give us the courage to ask this one question of you: Almighty God. Am I blessed or cursed? Am I righteous? Am I the righteous or am I the wicked? Lord, if we ask ourselves, we'll automatically put ourselves in the blessed category. But you've not given us the authority to do that. That resides purely and only with you because you're the only one that can be trusted with that answer. Again, David, the psalmist said, Psalm 139, verse 24, Lord, search me and know me. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path to everlasting life. Lord, help us to ask these right questions today. Search us, know us. Point out the truth of what family we really belong to. And then give us a desire of our heart. And do this only and solely for the glory of your precious name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing the doxology this morning as we leave this place. And remember, you let God deal with you. Answer that question. I'm available. Call me. Let's get together. I want to walk you through it. It's heaven and hell important. Amen, church? Amen. Let's sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow